Welcome back to The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dana Swedan, Dr. Saba's producer. This episode is part of our What Plants Crave series, where Dr. Saba speaks with growers, researchers, and other experts in controlled environment agriculture to get their insights about the direction of the industry, and of course, what exactly it is that plants crave. On today's episode, we're speaking to Dr. Hope Jones of Emergent Cannabis Sciences. Dr. Hope Jones is co-founder and president of Superior Phenos LLC, a cannabis biotech and hemp young plant production company based in Arizona. Superior Phenos is a team of seasoned plant scientists and commercial professionals coming together to raise the cannabis industry standards of science, business practices, and product quality. She is also CEO of Emergent Cannabis Sciences, an international cannabis and micropropagation consulting company. In her time as a NASA scientist, Dr. Jones developed technologies and protocols to grow crops for deep space missions. Dr. Jones's current work focuses on optimizing micropropagation protocols and facilities for the cannabis industry. Thank you for listening. Awesome. And take. All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, Today, I have a guest with me on our podcast, Dr. Hope Jones from Emergent Cannabis Sciences, or ECS, based out of Phoenix, Arizona. And we are going to be talking about plants, growing plants, and controlled environment agriculture. Dr. Hope Jones, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to actually have this conversation with you. And if we keep it specific to plants, I will be very impressed with the two of us. I will (laughs) too. So for those of you who don't know, which maybe a lot of you don't know, Hope and I have known each other for, what, 18 years? I can't believe it, but yeah. Yeah, when I first interviewed for being a PhD candidate at the University of Arizona in 2003, I of aging myself. Um, she was there uh, with her uh, now husband, uh, Dr. Chris Pagliarulo, and uh, a bunch of other uh, students and grad students, of course. And we hit it off and have been friends ever since on, on this long journey together in controlled environment agriculture. It was like an amazing way that we all came together. I know when, you know, we all have the opportunity to run into each other at conferences or work together on jobs or run into each other at Cultivate or something. We have all these like family reunion pictures because we all yeah. are in the industry. But I think what was so cool about having that time and having you there was I was an undergraduate at the time, and being a non-traditional student in the first place, it was going from the bars to the community college to the university was very intimidating for me, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a super shy person, so it's one of those weird ways of trying to figure out confidence on how to engage people when you're in a learning environment and not feel like you're stupid or come across like you know women were just not necessarily like asking a lot of questions right I mean Mm. it's just something like I feel like I should have known already and so when you came in for your um visit um and you were deciding if you were gonna um come to SEAC there at the U of A the presentation is happening, and you don't wait for Q&A. You're like, oh, so somebody was talking about something, and maybe it was VPD since we were talking about that earlier. And you're like, oh, can I ask a question about that? And I was like, people can do that? Like, you can actually just engage the presenter and have a conversation mm-hmm. and, and have that dialogue. So it was, you were a really good role model for me on actually how to enjoy the process, whether you were the presenter or the learner. It was actually just fun doing that and having 
that opportunity, just that dialogue. That's how my brain works. Well, anyway. I appreciate you saying that because you're actually one of our favorite people to watch give a presentation. Uh, I, I feel like we have really similar styles. Yeah. I think both of us have people in the audience who are making bets on how many times we're going to say the F word. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy seeing somebody else uh, struggle or not struggle to say that word. Uh, or just be like, hey, this is who no, I am. Uh, yeah, exactly. And interjecting this word right here, right now makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 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 And it's not because we don't have a big enough vocabulary. It's not about the vocabulary. <laughs> Jesus is about being able to communicate with everybody. And Jesus is on my side on that, too. I yeah. would approve. You would, for sure. So, you mentioned uh, just a moment ago that you sort of took a non-traditional route uh, to get to controlled environment agriculture <laughs> and plants in general. So, tell us a little bit about that. Why, what got you interested in plants in the first place? I had no idea that I thought anything about plants, actually. It was funny. So, when I was growing up, I'm, so I'm the first person in my uh, family to go to college. Um very middle-class family, and, and so it just wasn't anything that I thought was what we did. Nobody did. So the idea that uh, uh, I had to do anything after high school was, well, I bartended. I was a waitress, you know, um, eventually got into some restaurant management, but then I realized I was just a glorified, underpaid busboy and <laughs> went back to bartending. And that... It, I liked the dive bars. I liked the spectrum of people. So I think I never thought that I would even consider plants since I'm such a people person. Oh. But I grew up in the Top Gun era. <laughs> okay. Okay. We're going to get there. Okay. I can't wait. <laughs> and I just, that was the first time actually when I thought I wanted to be a pilot that I started to care about my grades. So I was not a good student growing up. I was a terrible student growing up. As I just didn't care. Um, and my, my dad, my, my family were, I come from, uh, uh, my dad's a race car driver and, you know, motorhead, I grew up, you know, in 69 Mustangs and stuff like that. So I grew up in the garage with the guys. So that's also probably where my mouth comes from, but uh, yes. <laughs> I don't have that excuse <laughs> or the, the fact that I'm Sicilian, that might have something oh, to do right. with it too. But anyway, so yeah, so cars, Airplanes eventually getting to plants, I promise you. So, yeah, so I just, I started to care about my grades. I was thinking about ROTC, and I was thinking about doing uh, and joining the Navy. Like, I was all bought into this idea until they said women can't fly in combat. So, like, I'm going to date myself here. I'm 48, right? So it's amazing to think about how far we've come, right? Yeah. Um, and maybe if I really was destined to do that, I could have been one of the first female pilots, but clearly I wasn't really meant to do that. Um, so here I am in the bars, and I am deciding I didn't want to be a 30-year-old bartender unless I owned the bar, which wasn't going to happen. So, well, I guess I'll go back to school and do something different. I wanted to do something different. And I was at the community college, which I loved. I'm a big fan of community colleges. Um, I loved it. All of a sudden, I realized I wasn't a terrible student. As a matter of fact, I loved going to school. I loved, I started all over with math. I mean, like addition, subtraction, fractions. Wow. I was like, but it was the best thing for me because I realized I could do this stuff. I just never had that mindset when I was growing up. So, so here I am, and I was like, okay, well, let's do something as, as a job that's different 
from the bars and there was a new nursery in town that had opened and um, was on my side of town I decided I'll go to the plant nursery and that's where I was hooked mm. and so there was a woman that worked there Dee Dee, hi Dee Dee um, in particular that just also had my kind of style of learning and walking around and just talking about plants and then I took some of the smartscape and the master gardener classes and I decided okay one night after I was closing up the bar I'm driving home must have been about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I had this epiphany. I want to grow plants in space. That's what, that's what I want to do with my life. So, so that somehow made a lot of sense to me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I had closed the bar. I think you guys got that point, right? Like, somehow all of that made it all yeah. come together. So, yeah, so I, I just went into work the next day at the nursery, and I was like, so, you know. I want to grow plants in space. And actually, the horticulturist, Eric there at the time, um, said, you know, that's kind of a thing, actually. You want to go to the U of A and talk with, you know, Gene Giacomelli and the group out there at Controlled Environment Ag and Merle Jensen and stuff. And so that's what I did. Um, and I transferred the next um, semester and oh, applied wow. to that program. And I was like, so they didn't laugh at me. You know, when I, I remember meeting with Gene the first time, because I took time and drove there. I wasn't like you as a graduate, you know, as a graduate um, prospect being invited out. Like, I, I sent an email. I was like, hey, can I come out and take a look at things, you know? I'm just this random person who's thinking about being an undergrad. And he's like, yeah, come on out. So I just was like, so I want to grow plants in space. And he's like, cool, we have some NASA projects. That's and, awesome. And then here I am. Wow. You actually did a, st- a stint. With NASA, did I you? Did. Oh my God, I did. Yeah, yeah. What was that like? I really did. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. I just wish they didn't have the brain drain. So when I went, mm. it was after um, I had got my undergraduate. I'd spent time at SEAC. I worked with um, Cherry Kubota, who was teaching me plant tissue culture, and um, I was working on an orchid study and doing oh, plant yeah. tissue culture and. I just loved what I was doing, and I knew that I would not be competitive for a NASA internship. I'm not like those students, you know? I mean, let's be honest. I'm in my 30s now at this point. I'm not some, you know, I always kind of, all of you in pre-med, I love you. I swear to God, if you're listening to this podcast, don't don't get mad when I say this. But when I was taking classes with you guys, you guys were like, oh, my God. I just, and I, you want to do everything, and you're straight A's, and you're perfect, and you're young, and you're perky, and you're like, fuck you. So, <laughs> there's <I'm> just, one. <laughs> like, how am I going to compete with that? Um, you know, and so I, well, one of the things I was learning was how to read papers. And so the people mm. who were doing the, the research at NASA, I just started sending them emails. I was like, I'm really loving what you guys are doing. I would like to do this. Um, is there... Could you give me some advice on how I might be able to work with you someday? And they said, actually, why don't you apply? We would love to have you. And instead of being an intern, I got hired as a NASA staff scientist with a, it was a contractor who was um, contracted with NASA out at, um, in Florida at Cape. And so it was there with, um, the name of the contractor was Dynamac. And so, yeah, as a actual staff scientist there, and it was still to this day, the best job, and it was the best job because I learned not only 
my God, it's scary when you actually do get out there because they're like, okay, welcome. And now you're going to start researching antioxidants and how to grow plants in space that are high in antioxidants. So I'm like, what's the antioxidant? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I had to figure it out. Like, I have a job now. This is my job. And I had to figure it out. But then I also learned um, one of the best management strategies. Um, Neil Uriel was my um, manager. And he said to me, and I use this to this day with my staff, he said to me, my job is to make your job as easy as possible. Mm. So I deal with the meetings. I'll deal with the BS. I will, you know, deal with the craziness of and tell you what you actually have to do and then just let you do your job, let you do your research. The other thing about that, they left at like 6 o'clock at night. They had weekends. So it was like, oh, yeah, coming from the university, I was like, so what what do I do with the rest of my time? I mean, I w- all I know how to do is work and be in the labs or be in the greenhouses. I was like, and you guys are going home at six. Like, so it taught me balance. Nice, nice. Yeah, it was amazing. So what's, what's something you learned about plants while you were at NASA that would surprise people? I mean, is there something different? I mean, I know there's a lot of things different, but give me one or two that maybe people don't think about the uniqueness of growing plants in space versus on Earth. Yeah, I, there's so many things that I can um, be shocked about. First of all, the fact that they grow normal. I mean, we would think that gravity, for mm-hmm. example, would play big roles. And I know that we're, at the time that I was there, they were still trying to understand the total mechanism for why even the roots are still growing down and the shoots are growing up. Um, you know, we think about the organelles that, and there are organelles that will settle and no gravity, and that's un- here under our normal atmosphere. So the fact that those organelles wouldn't be under that same type of uh, pressure would be interesting, and hmm. why wasn't that playing a role? So what is the actual mechanism for shoots growing up and roots growing down? So that's pr- that was pretty exciting. I think the other thing is that they've been doing, again, this was some time ago, so... Um, Gosh, they've been doing um, LED plant growth lighting studies since the 90s, I know, for sure. So they've been doing amazing light studies. They were working with um, exploring how, you know, the idea of what volatiles might be coming off of plants in in space so they could calculate that uh, for their emissions and and know everything that we might be exposed to or living behind. interesting. Um, but the thing that actually got me was, um, you know, I know as a bartender for so long, I feel like I know a lot about human psychology. Mm. I know a lot about plants. All my classes, obviously, when I went to school and decided I wanted to work with plants were plant anatomy, plant physiology, <laughs> plant biology. But I didn't know anything about the human body. Right? So, so I was like, antioxidants, so why does this matter to grow plants in space? Like, why do we want to do that? Okay, then here's my project, my first adult project. Why? What's the goal? And so the goal was if we eat foods that are high in antioxidants, then maybe that might help establish an internal armor for the astronauts who are being constantly bombarded by cosmic radiation, right? Because of what antioxidants are. And I was like, so I had to figure that out. So it was the missing part of of what mm. of me of how how all of this works together why plants matter why secondary metabolites matter why foods with colors matter why 
good cultural practices matter, right? I mean, yeah. you're not going to be a shitty grower up in space, are you? And, uh, you can't afford to be. <laughs> no. Yeah. So it's like, how can you do that? What, you know, I mean, so it just helped bring everything together for me. I mean, that's really interesting because, especially with growing plants, there, there's so much emphasis on yield, right? Mm-hmm. On producing more, how many pounds per square foot or grams per square meter, whatever, you know, yeah. grams per whatever. It's always about yield and quantity. And, you know, especially with controlled environment agriculture, a lot of the people who sort of poo-poo uh, this industry say, well, you could never grow enough calories, right, by growing indoors. We could never grow wheat and soy Mm -hmm, and corn mm -hmm. in the quantities that we want in a controlled environment. But, you know, I think what a lot of people are realizing, especially with leafy greens and even with berries and and now with cannabis Mm -hmm. they're getting on board, is that there is more value to growing plants indoors than just about calories. That's right. That there are quality attributes that are important for our health, that are important for the consumer to decide they want to buy that thing mm-hmm. because it looks good or tastes good or makes them feel better. Or it's local. Or it's local, exactly. So, yeah. um, and those secondary metabolites, I mean, when we think about the, um, the, the light curve, the Cree curve, right? It's, it's all about PAR, photosynthetically active radiation. Right. What is going to make this plant grow? Right. But, you know... What I do love about cannabis growers is that they're believers in sunlight, right? They're believers in full spectrum. They are the ones who are skeptical that just red and blue lights are going (laughs) to produce a product that they want to sell or that consumers want. Like, they have this intuition that the secondary metabolites, that the other wavelengths of light matter. They, our industry, and actually, I'm, I'm not you know, from the cannabis industry. And I learned so much by coming to these conferences because I just, I love this industry and how they actually embrace the knowledge of the entourage effect. Mm. Oh my gosh. When we sit down, the growers, and we all get talking and, and talk about the entourage effect and talk about stressing the plant and talk about sun is free. Yeah. The spectrum, the different times of year, where you are um, from, you know, your various regions, that is awesome conversations, right? Because then you're actually really starting to understand trichomes and you're understanding how to steer the plant. You're understanding what you don't understand. Right. Right? So why is it that we're getting a certain uh, terpene profile under certain spectrum or intensities or... The other, uh, you know, hearing about these lighting studies when you can max, I mean, we're talking about DLIs, what were we hearing in one of the talks, I mean, it, He was like up to 90 or something, that's ridiculous. Does that even exist on <laughs> Earth? I mean, it's just ridiculous, and we all know from the academic side of things, if we could get plants to better photosynthesize... Mm. It's such an efficient plant. It is efficient, but there's always a limiting factor. Yeah, always. Right? Yeah. So in controlled environment, we get that there's always a limiting factor. And what can we do from the perspective of costs? Yes, yields matter. Genetics matter. Um, time of the year matters. Uh, you know, your, your customer, you know, your end product matters. And so 
cannabis has this unique opportunity to really push every one mm. of those pockets. That's so true. Whereas these other industries in, in ag and hort, have then they're established, they're known, they're already, you know, pretty much set in stone. It's like this is all new foundation here, yeah. and it's really great to know that I can tr- be of some help to it, people when it comes to plants, understanding plants, but more importantly, how to, you know, treat them as far as, you know, growing and also disease eradication and being a good grower from that perspective and how, how to maintain your clean plants. But what I'm learning is more than I give back to this industry. It's every mm-hmm. time, every time we're at these conferences or have an opportunity to get together with growers, I learn so much. It's really a multi-way direction. It's awesome. Well, and, and breeding programs, I mean, have for 10,000 years, right, have been about yield and mm-hmm. pest resistance, right? Like, those have been the two primary factors. And classic, yeah. Yeah, every classic breeding. Everything yeah. but cannabis. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and you're starting to see sort of a mental shift in that. I mean, that's all, those two are probably always going to be sort of taught. But once... You know, as we're growing indoors and we're filtering the air and we're excluding insects and pests from coming inside, you know, pest resistance becomes less of a critical factor. Yield is still important, but now we get to play with those other things, the aesthetics, the qualities, the secondary metabolites. I mean, one of the, my favorite things about, you know, just talking about the, the secondary metabolites is anthocyanin. Oh, yeah. And a red oak leaf lettuce or other, you know, red crop. And that it doesn't show up unless it's exposed to UV and maybe some some infrared. And, you know, scientists think that that is their plant's natural sunscreen to protect it from UV rays. I freaking love that. And here we have all these purple strains. Yep. Right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So here we have these beautiful, beautiful red, purple strains in, in cannabis and hemp. And then... The idea of the nutritional value for that, we have never really had the mm. chance to explore. We've never had the chance to understand exactly, like, all the toys that I miss from academia, I have to admit. You know, yeah. the, every sensor that we got to play with and just be like, what is this stress doing? How's it changing? You know, the chemical profile of, of this um, particular chemovar and then if we actually have some consistency and quality to the yields that we are producing, then we can have very, very um, tighter clinical studies that will happen that would be re- reprodu- you know, repeatable yep. by multiple clinicians. And, you know, we are just at the cusp of getting there. And it's just about, you know, one of the things, and, and you're, you're talking about all the things we get to play with, but... In my little, you know, world of, of the cannabis industry, if we don't have the genetics from which to be able to play, there's, it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're in the retail or the process, processing. If you don't have good genetics that you can have a predictable yield, if you can actually have the same um, quality or reproducible chemical profiles, this is really going to impact our industry. It already is. Um, putting dollar values to that should be coming soon because now we actually have some historical data in various states. But the disease pressure mm-hmm. for our genetics yeah. is really, really, really bad. And in order for us to be able to know what even a baseline is for our uh, controlled environments, yeah, 
we need to have genetics that are not just like trying to survive because they're 20 years old and they're meant to be an annual right. or not a preannual. Or also at the same time, just bogged down with, you know, all of this stress and epigenetic baggage that comes along with that. So, so good segue into, t- I mean, tell us what you do. I mean, you are emergent uh, cannabis sciences, you are focused on tissue culture, right? I mean, what, tell it, what is tissue culture and why is that important for the genetics of, of cannabis and any plant for that matter? So I'm a grower first and foremost, I'm a grower. And so tissue culture is one tool in that grower's toolbox. And since I didn't come from the traditional cannabis background and I didn't come from the traditional horticultural background, um, I'm more of a grease monkey in the garage and I tinker and I try to figure out how to make things work. And I'm like, if I need to go over here and steal from apart from this car to make this car actually run better, mm-hmm. I'm not biased to do so. I'm not locked in. So I think that's one of the fun things about being in this industry at this time. So... As a grower, you wanna you wanna you wanna grow some good shit. You wanna do it in a way that you can also make a living. Yeah. Okay, and for the first time, unless you were in the tech industry, we get an opportunity to start our own thing, right? As as our build our own businesses. So if you need help with your cultivation, that's what I do. I help you with that. What has really kind of um, become clear as a need in this industry is the need for good, healthy genetics. Because as everyone's learning to be better growers, you can be the best grower, but if you're working with shit, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. Okay, we all know that. And as a black market, you know, industry for so long, if you're growing on a small scale, you didn't have the same pest pressure problems that you have when you're a commercial grower. You also have a different skill set and come at a commercial operation with that plant science training behind you. So you know how to do Mm -hmm. pest control in a way that doesn't create resistance or doesn't create problems. Like you don't get so attached to a plant that you're afraid to throw it away. Mm. Like we are with our moms, right? Um, Certain strains. I mean, we are in love with our particular strain. And instead of getting rid of it when you started to see some wacky symptoms or if the yield started to decline, like what happens in commercial operations, well, you didn't have to do that in the black market so much because you didn't grow at that scale. So here now, we are out of the black market. We're a legitimate industry, and we are rapidly growing But that whole knowledge base on how to do and scout was lagging, right? So those simple steps that you can do and just do isolation and quarantine when you're bringing in new genetics, we didn't do that in this industry. So then we just brought in new genetics and we started introducing whatever that clone's problem had in Colorado. You're introducing that into your grow in Arizona in your mom room and then now we don't really listen to other people because we're a master grower and we know what we're doing and I don't mean that in a bad way that's part of the growing up and the maturing that we do but it's like if you don't listen to your propagators or (laughs) that are saying I'm seeing some weird stripes ah oh no you know and then your response is cow mag or ph you know go take a look at the plants learn how to scout so that's what I help them do we all want to learn so it's like 
they just didn't need to know that back then as growers. So now you do if you're going to stay in this industry and then the margins are getting tighter. So now you have your favorite strain and she's sick, right? And what are we going to do about it? Well, I'm going to go borrow the part over at the car over here because in ag, they figured that out, you know, like 100 years ago. Let's do tissue culture because if we can actually eradicate the disease from the plants and tissue culture is that method that gives us that chance it's not a guarantee but if we can actually use tissue culture um, to eradicate the disease and it's still a genetic identical clone well then we actually get several things out of that method we get mass production of a clean um, stock so now if it's your cookies or your whatever your Mac or whatever your favorite purple Urkel is, you know, it's a clone, it's genetically identical. It hopefully is eradicated of the diseases like the Fusarium, the Hoplaton Viroid or what have you. Um, now you can actually also bank that. So what is tissue culture? Tissue culture is a form of taking a piece of a plant tissue. So that's where the tissue comes from. And then you're putting it onto culture. So think of Petri dishes and Think of Jello, right? So Jello, when you make it and you boil everything down and uh, the sugar dissolves, well, that's our media. We we also cook it to sterilize it um, because we also have sugar in our media typically. And so you're doing that, and when it solidifies like Jello, because we use the same um, reagent agar, then now you have a place to put that tissue, and we can talk about what the tissue type is. But plants have this very cool thing to be essentially like a stem cell with any part of their anatomy, if, if signaled appropriately. And the reason that plants can do this, and it's um, their, their adaptation because they're sessile. They can't get up and move yeah. in stress. So like here, you know, in where I'm at in Arizona, and it's fucking hot, right? So cacti have, you know, developed these whole adaptations, but you also have, if you break off something, you know, it can, something that's a shoot can now become those cells that's hitting the the ground can be like, ah, oh, damn, if I'm going to live, I need some roots. So those cells that were a shoot are now becoming reprogrammed and they become roots. Which is why everybody loves succulents right now, right? Yes. I mean, you cut off the little nubbin and you replant it and you have a whole new cactus succulent plant. That's it's, so cool. So it's like, okay, so... And with very little resource, like it's some water and some substrate and I mean... It really is. Like uh, the cost to do this from a commercial scale for agriculture is the other advantage. So if mm. you think about the square footage of... Um, having to maintain donor stock or moms, and then plus all of your propagation space, all of the pest management and labor that goes into that, the utility costs, all of those other um, CapEx, OpEx costs that goes into that. Well, agriculture has decided, well, we're going to use tissue culture companies to produce our propagated material. We're just going to be flowering houses or we're just going to be rooting houses. Like, so I'm borrowing ideas that's already established, that already works in an industry that's obviously successful, that works under margins much yeah. smaller than yeah. the cannabis market. They have the automation, they have all of this, and I'm just introducing it into the cannabis industry to those who actually want to give it a go. Because again, if you're 
really trying to do this at a commercial scale, you can't be working with shit genetics. So you can grow plants, I guess, a few different ways, right? Like one is you can grow it from seed. Mm-hmm. You yeah. can have mother plants and then cut off the stems and root them and grow them, your clones, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you can do tissue culture and cut off part of the, the, the genetic material, right, that establishes who that plant is, mm-hmm. right? So, and, then, and then propagate that into, into a full plant. So, I mean, I feel like there's an obvious question, which is why aren't we growing from seed? I mean, don't we grow a lot of other plants from seed? What What is special or different about cannabis that makes it so hard to grow it from seed? Where do I begin? <laughs> um. <laughs> I mean, is the genetic material in a seed variable? You know, like, because apples are kind of cool like that, right? Yeah. We clone apples. People don't realize that because all those apple seeds hold a different piece of the genetic material of so that apple that we So you have a sister, like. right? I have a sister, correct. All right, and... Without getting too personal, assume everything. All all siblings. We have the same parents. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So why aren't you genetically identical? Well, you're not genetically identical because when your parents all had their thing and those chromosomes are exchanging, what your you the parts of your parents' chromosomes are a little bit different. Okay, so it's. It's that whole meiosis thing. And when you have that genetic exchange from parent one and parent two, you're always going to have something different, even though it's the same parents. What gets even a little bit more complicated in plants is we assume our parents are stable in this scenario. (laughs) I think most of our parents are unstable, but that's a different conversation. But that also leads to the variability. Okay, so let let me actually break this down a little bit less silly. Um, This is how my brain works. (laughs) So, So I think of it as our industry is young. Our industry was not classically trained as breeders, on a big scale. Now, there's great breeders out there that have been doing it from the beginning of time. We wouldn't be here without it. Like, yeah, so yeah. I don't mean that. What I mean is when we start to grow so fast, everybody becomes a breeder. Mm. And now we're doing thing, a lot of things like pollen checking. And we were also doing things that just wanted to grow a lot of yields in a very small space yeah. under a very short time. Yeah. So... There's so many things that have led to the problem with using seeds in the short run because I, seeds are a must. So you get new phenos from seeds. You need to be able to have the bandwidth, the money, the support structure, and the ability to collect data to pheno hunt that in an appropriate way. And then you want to do your back crosses. And so you want to get into the Punnett squares, you know, pick up some books, guys. This is the funnest, coolest thing about genetics is being able to figure all of that out and do your back crosses, stabilizing. You need to actually then, again, cross and do selfs. And then you need to have, boom, a very trackable with data number of generations where you've selfed and you're very stable and you've actually then have weeded out, not to use a pun, but we've weeded out a lot of the um, recessive traits and you're just left with the dominant traits, the thing that's going to be there all the time. And that's actually how like the grain industries and they've been able to do that for hundreds and hundreds of years. Thousands, Thousands of years. We just got started. And then now it's also hard to know who those good breeders are. 
Okay. Right? Because the industry is really littered right now. It's a little cloudy. You don't necessarily know if that seed brand or who did that, what their data was. We also don't yet know how to ask the right questions. So I'm not necessarily a big fan on regulation because we can self-regulate ourselves by being more educated and asking better questions. Mm. So if we could ask the question, can you show me your data for the stability of your genetic? Like, tell, tell me more about that. Um, can I see germination percentage? Can I see some, like, the farmers nowadays, when they go buy seeds, they don't have to ask those questions anymore because they have to buy their seeds from a certified seed dealer and all of that is regulated. So that's yeah. an assumed thing. So it's very easy to use seeds and know what you're getting from seeds because of the hundreds or thousands of years of breeding and the regulation in that industry. I mean, even when I think about tomatoes, mm -hmm. right, a, a traditional greenhouse crop, that when greenhouses were first becoming a little popular uh, in the 90s, they used to call them water bombs. <laughs> because they were growing outdoor field tomatoes yeah. inside and were not yet bred for, you know, the, the special characteristics of growing in a greenhouse. Uh, and so there was, you know, at least a decade of breeding tomatoes specifically for controlled environment agriculture. That's and, right. And now we're seeing that even with lettuce, right, is that lettuces were bred for a greenhouse, and now we're trying to stuff them into these vertical farms in very high densities with very different light conditions, different humidity conditions, and there's breeding programs going on right now and for lettuce as well. And all that is funded also by those industries. So we have very little financial support to do any kind of R&D that's necessary that would benefit the greater industry to come up with mm. those type of strains. So if you are, um, so we've had uh, uh, clients in Colombia, for example, want to start growing and they are dealing with the genetics that they have. Well, if they don't have local genetics, the likelihood that you're going to have genetics that are going to thrive in a Colombian environment when you're buying them from somebody in Arizona is very unlikely, very different climates. So you're going to have plants that can't actually handle the disease pressure. And so now we also have years and decades and generations of um, underground growing that we didn't care about disease resistance. We didn't care about powdery mildew resistance. We didn't care about spider mite resistance. We cared about fast yield, high THC because we didn't have the instrumentation of academia to be able to look for chemical profiles like we do now. So we can do all of that now, but who's funding it? Who is funding it? Nobody's funding it. Yeah. Well, that's not true. You have universities coming on board now, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. wonderful because now you're going to start seeing this data, but it's going to take a long time before we have known powdery mildew resistance in all of the strains we've already mentioned today. Yeah. The rainbow of flavors that now also has powdery mildew resistance. Could you imagine? How awesome would that be? <laughs> so, I mean, it dawns on me, you know, I mean, right now, you know, we buy, you know, a little packet of burpee seeds, right, mm -hmm. or whatever. And, and even when I think about our little vertical farm where we're growing arugula and lettuces and basils, I mean, we still plant a couple of seeds, right, in each cube because 
they're not always all successful, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And and may, and once they are right, we can like weed out like the weak one or whatever. Yeah. Um, and there's even an expectation I feel like in sort of that traditional horticulture that we know that they're not all going to be perfect, right? And and we've set that expectation. We're planning for that expectation, and and we you know have a process and SOP in place to make sure that we have as many successful seeds or successful plants as possible. Do you see that in the cannabis industry, or, or is, are the expectations higher in cannabis as a grower that, that you're going to expect every single plant to perform exactly how you want it to? So we do want, we're commercial growers now, so we do want that. We want every single plant, which is one of the reasons and the advantages to use clones over seed is you don't have to worry about a germination rate. You don't have to worry about, you know, filling the holes. You don't have to worry about the labor going through and culling males, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to worry about those types of uh, burdens. And clones should be predictable. You, harvest after harvest after harvest after harvest, if it's the same genetic every single time. And in agriculture, the way they do that is they go back to their germplasm, right? So let's let's just say, okay, yeah, you start to, I mean, how many, I mean, I know there's going to be a lot of growers out here that can know what their yields are, and they know when they start to see that decline. You guys know what I mean when I say that. You know that she's starting to just kind of funk out on you. Well, we struggle with that. We force ourselves to still take cuts from those moms when we've been dealing with that. Well, we could go back to the germplasm, and so we could go back to cold storage or cryo storage, and we could actually pull her out because when we preserved that strain um, in, the, in the gene bank, the point was we never want to lose that juvenility and that predictability, mm. and we want to have those known yields and those numbers and when you know that genetic so well, you know when you want to actually work that, you know, it's a form of regeneration of your donor stock, for example. So that's where we're going when it comes to the clonal production, and we have the margins to do that in cannabis. We're working and um, growing for chemical profile, not necessarily for fiber, for stock. I think when it comes to the hemp industry, seeds is still really going to be the better um, option and so we just need the genetics we and we need the there. right breeders to be recognized and we need the farmers and the growers to ask better questions so we're consumers when we're buying something choose who you give your money to mm-hmm. and you should hopefully ask the right questions so you're making the best choice whether you're a consultant and doing it for your client or you're doing it for yourself as a grower. So if I'm thinking in terms of efficiencies, I, I, I want to ask you uh, a question, but I'm also having some thoughts on just the things that you've said about efficiencies that aren't necessarily thought of in terms of one of the advantages of clones over seeds, even with a well-established plant like tomato, mm-hmm. is that there's a labor efficiency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that... With a clone, if, if you're planting each of those plants, you're not waiting for those seeds to pop, right, right. to germinate. Um, you might, you know, you just have less labor associated with propagating that plant, rooting that plant, than you do waiting to see if seeds are going are gonna to grow. Um, so that, to me, is a labor efficiency, which is a huge efficiency. But in terms of a tissue culture, say, versus a mother room, 
if I had, like, how many mother plants can I, re- I, I I'm trying to do this on a, on a square footage basis or in a room basis, right? Yeah. If I had a mother room of however many plants, what it would be the equivalent sort of size of a tissue culture storage room or lab room that could, that would be equivalent to those mother plants? Do you have a unit, a metric in your mind that you could share? So... Think about your generic mother in a three-gallon pot on, on one of your benches. And think about that footprint, okay? So whether you lollipop it or not, however you do it, there's so many different ways to do it. I don't want to get in controversy about that. But if you're thinking about, you know, what do you think an average footprint for that is? For one plant? Yeah, yeah, three-gallon pot. Uh, ten by ten? That's huge. That is huge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hold on. Well, how? <laughs> let's 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 see. Like a, sixteen square feet, four by four, maybe. Well, if if I'm a plant, so yeah, you guys yeah. can't see. I'm standing up, <laughs> and I'm gray now, so I look like a Q-tip because <laughs> my hair is all fuzzy, and and so I am like a mother plant. So I'm like like two and a half, three feet. Okay, right? Maybe if you want. So to get, ten square feet, maybe. Okay, but if I'm well, one if you're plant, three by three, okay, that's what I'm oh, thinking. Yeah, yeah, Nine yeah, square feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Spin okay. the cute up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right, and you think about, I'm one mom. Okay. Now, if I was one mom and I'm let's say, three, four feet tall. Okay. All right. So I'm growing cultures in a maybe a, think of a deli cup or a four by four uh, jar. And I could have a two, you know, a standard Home Depot rack that's two by four. So in the same footprint of that mom, if that was five shelves on a rack, maybe I have, so what, let's give this mother a name. We use in our lab, uh, Kyle names a lot of our, our plants. Um, so we'll pick Martha. Okay. So Martha there, all right, is strain A. So on the first shelf, I have a shelf of Martha's. On the second shelf, right, well, sitting next to Martha is Betty. Well, that's shelf two, but that's in the same footprint as Martha. Next to Betty, you got Marcia. All right. Well, that's on my shelf three in the same footprint as Martha. Right. And so on and so forth. So now I have your entire mother room (laughs) on one rack. Wow. So without using numbers. Yeah. Just that visual. It's like it's possible to do that. What are you growing them under? I mean, are there special here's, conditions? Here's the thing that I want to say, actually, and make really, I think, um, a, a, a misnomer about tissue culture. I don't think it's a good idea to replace your mothers, especially right away. I really don't. When I'm working with clients or with people who are um, wanting to buy nursery stock, start with replenishing your mothers first from tissue culture. All right, start there because just like when you mm-hmm. actually are learning to grow with LEDs, there's a little bit of a learn curve. So plants actually that are not plagued and bogged down with stress and disease oh, can now actually focus all of their attention on growth, development, and yield. How will they differ? Holy shit, how will they not? Like, I mean, if you are not all the time focused on dealing with... Um, you know, heat stress or, or water stress, 
and you actually can send every metabolite and focus that on growth and development, what you get is full genetic potential. Full genetic potential. So tissue culture does not all of a sudden take a, a strain that at most could only produce 20% and now make it a 30%er. Like if that wasn't in its genetic makeup. But what it can do now is really express 20% if we grow it properly to mm. express its full genetic potential. So now you get to be a real grower. Now you get to use those CEA skills to actually manipulate your environments. And because now you have a baseline. I mean, you're bringing up so many questions in my head about this um, and that genetic potential. Yeah. I mean, are, are mother rooms designed to make up for the inefficiencies of sort of old plants? Or are they designed for the new sort of vigorous mother plants and that over time, that environment, that those lights, whatever that you originally put in, for the newer genetic material becomes less effective. No, it's totally out of necessity. As a cannabis grower, you cannot actually order your propagative material from China. As a cannabis grower, you cannot order your propagative material from Costa Rica, which is how... Regular agriculture, horticulture, floriculture actually orders their propagative material. Comes from, Everything's been offshored. Mm. So they devote all their square footage. So they don't need mother rooms. We need mother rooms because we don't do that. We can't do that. We have all of these, you know, boundary and, and legal areas. Ah, it has nothing to do with growing. It has nothing to do with any of that. Yeah, because traditional horticulture, you might be growing your commercial tomatoes in Arizona that you're going to actually grow to fruit and then mm -hmm. sell. Mm -hmm. But then you sourced your nur your seedlings from a nursery in Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah Completely yeah, different. Yeah, but yeah, we can't yeah. do that in yeah. cannabis, right? Because I mean, and even it, within the same state, it and would it be would hard. make a lot of sense. Actually, it's better actually environment in Florida to have your propagative. Yeah, in a humid, growers. warm environment. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yes. Like, like if. Like, I think about this all the time. Like, how am I going to pivot? Like, where would I want to be doing this if I didn't have the legal constraints? And then people like us are like, okay, well, now we have to add humidifiers. Oh, and my we God. Have to, now we have to do... making us spend yeah. so much money and resources. To do everything, everything. rather than focusing on one thing and With doing a bunch of well. newbies. Yeah. I mean, newbies from the perspective of commercial production. Right. Not newbies... In the, I mean, I'm being schooled by these guys that have created this industry and given me this job, right? It's just newbies from a commercial perspective with this crowd. Yeah. And even when you think about the skill sets that you have to hire and have in a facility that does all the things, yeah. it's a lot harder to find those people that can do all those things. And, yeah. and then even do you segment them, right, so that you have a team that's just focused on the moms and veg and someone that's just focused on flour or or they we drag of all trades. You know, the and funny thing is, actually, if we think about who, the, who when we say we, <laughs> let's think about, um, you know, because I do so much consulting, one of the things that I find really, really interesting is who are the they's? Who are these people? Well, yeah. you have, you know, the people the, the, that are this industry, the growers, the, the black market becoming legitimate. You have those individuals often referred to as bros or legacy, however we want to think about why we are here, you guys. Yeah, yeah. 
now being coupled with business people. Well, the growers, not classically trained commercial growers, are not, why would they know to actually hire IPM specialists? <laughs> why would they know that? Right. And then why would the funding agency, who are typically VCs, venture capitalists, you know, that the money, they don't know anything about growing. Right. So why would they know to have IPM specialists? So I don't actually think that this industry has done anything wrong as far as to get us to this place where we are with really terrible, shitty genetics. I think we just are so new that why We don't know what we don't know. Yeah, and yeah. so now, hopefully... Because of people, I think, like you and I, I, mm-hmm. I, do, I do think that there is something special about us to be able to talk to just about anybody on the planet, right? Yeah. And so, and try to help them understand from their or perspective. Space. Or their space, <laughs> that's right. Be like, okay, I see what's missing here, and I can help do a little translation, be like, this is why you want this, and then I can help you then understand the cost-benefit analysis. And then maybe sometimes, like, I'm sure you've had the hard conversation, be like, it's just not a good idea from an age-back perspective. Yeah. That's a hard conversation. It can be, for right? sure. But yeah. we do it all the time, and, and it's just like, and we've been forcing ourselves to grow in these environments that are not the right environments for that particular Even researchers, for approach. that matter. Yeah. It's like researchers are like, let's get the lights as close to the plants as possible so we don't have any, you know, lost light or light leaking over the racks or the benches or and whatever. And I'm just in, like... And it being applied, be like, I can't do that in real practice. Yeah, yeah. How, am I, what am I, how am I supposed to handle my plant? And me as an HVAC <laughs> person, I'm like, how am I supposed to blow air across yes. that plant yes. when yes. there's these lights in my yes. way? Yeah. yeah, we see the absurdity uh, sometimes. And it's not, yeah. a, it's necessity. It's establishing a baseline. So it's like, we understand why academia does that because it establishes the baseline yeah. that then we get to have fun with or figure out how to make a business out of. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a cool world. It is. <laughs> so, um, you know, what do you think are some of the biggest potential areas for improving efficiency? And, and that could be efficiency of anything, right? It could be yeah. energy, water, labor, land, waste. I don't care. Pick one or two or, of your favorite. But where do you see the the greatest potential for efficiencies in cannabis and, and even in horticulture in general, if, if you have any thoughts there? It's going to be labor. Yeah. It just is. Yeah. It's going to be labor. And the reason why I think labor um, is important for me is not just from the dollars, the numbers finding the laborers, it's the disease pressure. Every time you have a touch point to the plant, you have the potential to be a vector. Yeah. Right? And so it also slows efficiency down if you actually have to move from point A to point B or if you have to go from point A to... And before you even get to B, you have to do something. Yeah. So it's it, so then if we're talking about numbers, then that becomes an issue. But again, this is a medicine, Right, we are consuming this in ways that you don't consume spices in the same way, and in the number of ways that cannabis is consumed. I mean, the way in the in being a part of the analytical labs really ex- opened up my eyes. Like, shit, we put cannabis in everything, in every form, every way, and for every part of our body. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's 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 crazy awesome, and sometimes like hysterical. So, especially to watch the chemists figure out how to test it. But I think that, you know, we have to be the cleanest, best, most efficient growers 
for this crop. So we have the unique cha legal challenge. We have the unique challenge of being novices, and we have the unique challenge that this plant is so diverse and we use it in so many different ways. That means we have to actually be really the best growers because we're challenged on how to do that for hitting all of those spectrums. Yeah, what was the quote yesterday? There's 25,000 uses for hemp that was quoted in Popular Mechanics from 1938. Oh my God, oh think my, about uh, that yeah. poor chemist that has to figure out oh how to validate the right method <laughs> to test the cannabinoid profile for the whole of that. Like, I think of Aaron in the lab when I was working with Aaron at, at the lab. I mean, I would just see his face and be like, who would, I mean, it's just amazing, right? I mean, so let me ask you about that because you, you've had some experience with lab testing, safety testing. What was that like? I mean, what, and what was the outcome of that? Why, why were you involved in that? Um, yeah. Oh my God. I, I'm so glad you asked me about this because this is probably the most important to me and I never really talk about it. Mm. Like I'm talking about growing all the time, but this is, I think this is why I love doing what I do do. Um, first of all, I was shocked when I got into the industry as a grower, my first gig here in Arizona, and um, was trying to find a lab that could help me understand how they were testing for powdery mildew. Because I didn't think you could grow powdery mildew out. And then somebody's like, yep, positive for powdery mildew, and the colony count is X. And I was like, I didn't but I'm not a microbiologist, so I'm like, so I finally ran into this lab in, um, in uh, Arizona, uh, C4, and ended up being the CSO there, but the, the chemist, you know, Aaron Hicks, who was the director at the time, he's like, oh, you need a live host to, to, to be able to, to, to grow powdery mildew, and so honesty was one of the first things that I realized was not necessarily lacking, but it was just a lack of education. It wasn't that the lab was trying to do something wrong. They just didn't know necessarily how to do it. Well, hmm. why would they? <laughs> there's no methods for cannabis. Interesting. Then I learned that there's nothing on a pesticide label for cannabis, yeah. and we're the only crop in the United States that's granted permission to use pesticides, whether it be organics or not, that is not labeled. So we get away with that, which means... In Arizona at the time, when I was the CSO for the lab, I also had, so there's that, and then I had a dad who brought in a bunch of tinctures, and we're, he was concerned about, like, the heavy metals and the, and the products, but we were never required to test them, and he's like, well, why not? It's a medicine. I was like, good point, dad. Yes, I understand that, too. You're right, and the other thing that was happening was his son was starting to have seizures again. And so he probably spent like $600 on tinctures and, and they weren't working. And these are tinctures that, you know, were labeled as such of having a certain CBD to THC ratio. Well, when we tested them out of the six tinctures, only one actually had freaking CBD in it. What? Only one. The other one was nowhere near the label claim. They weren't even testing for that? Well, wow. they were, maybe. Who knows? There was, no, there was no rules in Arizona about what you could apply to the plant. You could put anything on the label as long as you met the Department of Health's requirements on what they wanted from their... They want to track and trace. Okay. 
I don't care what you tell the customer, what the percentage is. So one of my friends, Carrie Stark, came up with this analogy about, think about if you had to dose yourself with aspirin and somebody gave you one of those big old uh, sidewalk pieces of chalk and be like, break yourself off 20 milligrams. <laughs> I was like, Carrie, that's the best analogy I've ever heard. So as, as the, that was shocking to me, and I was like, but, and, but as a grower, when I'm talking with growers who created resistance because they bombed one too many times, and when I mean bomb, like pyrethrin bombs, and when you walk into a greenhouse and you open the bay doors and you have white flies that kind of hover like a cloud what? and then park back down onto the plants because they had become resistant to the bombs. Oh, God. As a grower, that hurts my soul. Like, that's bad. That's so bad. And completely unnecessary. Like, on so many levels. So then the other thing as a lab... We could only act, we weren't licensed to test. There was no real safety cushion for us. Like if we were to get raided or something and we had all of these bags of flour, we're testing it because those people who did, these companies that did want to test and did want to put accuracy on their labels are doing the right thing by having it tested. Yeah. Um, but we actually didn't have the right to do that. So I got all involved in um and I guess the politics for the first time, and I was like, whoa, this is crazy important to be a part of because it was interesting to watch how even just developing the hemp bill, so I worked with the bill sponsor, um, Cindy uh, Borelli, and the Department of Agriculture on the hemp bill in the state of Arizona to get that passed. Um, I worked with um, various trade groups and um organizations to get safety testing and not because I want regulation and I don't want pesticides and da, da, da. no I love how our state department of agriculture approaches things I want to help growers be better growers and be compliant and most growers just want to be good at what they do mm-hmm. and have a good living and be able to have the best plants and the best bud and the best yields like that's what gets us going yeah. it's not about putting a bunch of chemicals like if we can grow well we're going to grow well if we have good genetics we're going to do that so I think if we do our own kind of self-regulation and ask better questions but if we don't have a voice at those tables when those bills are being written and developed we're fucked y'all I mean just from the perspective of um, like one example with the hemp rules when they were being developed so I wasn't a part of those rules committee. I mean, I was part of helping write the legislation, but I wasn't on those committees or anything, And but I went to all the meetings. And then they were trying to figure out what were they going to use for a, how did they know what hemp plants to allow to grow? And so one idea being tossed around was, let's use the certified list from Kentucky because, well, they've done research and it's certified. And I was like, um, no. Not because it's a bad idea, it's because what grows well in Kentucky isn't going to grow well in Arizona. Could you imagine the difference in soil and climate? Could you imagine how that would have actually just really burdened the farmers in Arizona right from the get-go? So it wasn't that I didn't want a certified representation of genetics to come into the industry, but the other problem is if we don't have molecular markers to be able to enforce a name, we're really just enforcing a name. How many times have we heard in the industry be like, oh, dude, I'm out, you know, whatever strain was out and be like, oh, take that extra pound and just rename it and send it out. Like, I mean, 
there's no if there's no way of you know knowing what is what you can't enforce anything so really what are you going to do pass the law based off of a name that somebody can change anytime like that's just stupid i mean i feel like one of the themes of this talk right now is consistency yeah consistency in genetics consistency yeah. in testing consistency in how we grow consistency and i mean just it's so needed in this industry at every single level from from the gene to the yeah. product at the end and how we label it. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, we were talking earlier about who's funding it, right? So it's like the reason why there's no testing is, so I have no interest in being an analytical lab ever again. That is really hard. And it? It's really hard. It's really hard because you have to pay a lot of money for the instrumentation. You have to know how to test a million different products you have to hire very very skilled workers like there's nothing small about that entry level dollar amount but the testing is critical to have information I think there's a lot of good labs out there so I don't need to be in that space mm-hmm. right I think that there's a lot of those labs that are out there they're doing really good stuff they're they're getting better and better all the time I think what we're lacking is actual good agricultural labs that will do testing on a disease profile for us. We need labs out there, um, so I'm self-funding my own RT-PCR so I can do in-house testing and be able to know what disease is because I can't afford always to use third-party labs, right? You need the third-party labs even though when you're doing things in-house, like at, when you're a grower, you will always use third-party labs. But to do this in-house, to be able to make it cost-effective, for me as a tissue culture company, it makes sense that I be able to have this in-house. I can't also afford, I mean, just think of all the shipping to send everything out for testing gets expensive. And when there's nobody in the state that's doing it. And then most of these companies don't want to talk about the validation of their methods, and that's something that really bothers me. And that's because of the university training, right? I mean, we have to publish our methods. We have to... Show oh, yeah. our seat like yeah. it need you need to be able to validate it right. and and a lot total of total transparency. Yeah, and as a lab, I I just really have uh, or at, you know somebody with that experience, I have a problem not uh, trust but verify. Let me just say that. Yep, yep. I just want to be able to trust but verify, and so there's just not enough of those partners out there to work with and. We're just, again, so young, um, we need industry, trade association kind of money to go towards this research for seed certification or establishing maybe some of our own standards so we don't need laws to do it. We want to be able to self-regulate if we can. We don't want laws. Right. More, we, I think if anybody doesn't want laws, it's the cannabis industry, let's be honest. I think we're over it, but I think we can do it in a smart way of self-regulation if we're willing. And I just find growers and farmers in general, I mean, they are the salt of the earth people, right? I mean, they are working the land or working with plants and other living organisms that maybe don't have a voice for themselves or feet to walk over and, and make changes themselves. Um, and I just find them all, you know, at least the ones that we work with and talk to and visit, uh, just, you know, concerned citizens, right? They, they, and, and good people who want to do right by other people. actually know what to do. Yeah, and they're producing products that other people are going to consume, whether it's a medicine 
or food or, you know, and, yeah. and they don't want to poison people, right? They it's, don't want to over-fertilize stuff. Yeah. They don't want to use pesticides. Exactly. But if they're working with shitty genetics that are highly susceptible to russet mites, they have no choice if they're going to make a living, right? And so... What we need to do as an industry as a whole is to support breeding, to support testing, to support things like tissue culture and germplasm so you don't get wiped out with a fire. You can go back to the germplasm. Like, you need to be able to support this as an industry as a whole. And that's the great thing about approaching this as a grower. But having the science training, having the analytical lab perspective, because when I have that opportunity in that moment to have the right conversation with the right senator and say, actually, they don't want to use pesticides. What they would like to do is if we could approach it from the grower's perspective. Like, let's not over-regulate for the sake mm-hmm. of o- over-regulation. Like, no, they don't want to use pesticides, so we don't have to create a big, huge list of pesticides that they probably wouldn't use anyway. Let's actually use things that might be really relevant. Like, what are the real problems? And is there any clinical significance behind that? Like, I can... Because as a grower, if you didn't have to spend the money to put the products on there, if you actually had better, faster yield times, like, you're going to do all of that. Right. And so if we can actually just support the growers in the right mindset and the right approaches when we're thinking about energy. Like, let's think about how to support them from the perspective of how to be more sustainable, right? We can do that if we think about it from the grower's perspective to set those right approaches. And if the industry starts to do it ourselves, then we don't necessarily have to be overburdened with laws, I think, if we got real smart about it. I mean, ultimately, this industry, the cannabis industry specifically, is not a mature industry. We're still figuring out the genetics and the breeding um, and having consistent stocks of plants in whatever form they are. And to regulate right now without having... um, dependable stock Mm -hmm. what are we regulate what we regulate for right now might be so different than 10 years from now when we do have seeds when we are doing tissue culture and we have strong plants that what we did today might might not be relevant 10 years from now and then we're really screwed if we have to start changing laws again and again Uh, well yeah once you create a law it's a lot harder to take it off the books right yeah exactly (laughs) right so i think if we as i mean this is the cool thing about being a consultant is that you get to help those businesses think about well, if we get the right opportunity to work with the right client who's doing their due diligence and think yeah. about what do you want to do now and let's plan for what you can do in the future, right? Exactly. So, okay, so would you maybe really stop using everything but LED in your veg space and let me explain and show you the data why that makes a lot of sense and then we're going to transition and, and allow you to figure out how to do that in flower on your time and your scale, right? But then now that's, I think, a nice way to transition. It was also... Similar to why I was saying transition with your approach with tissue culture by doing your mother stock. Mm. Like, let's learn how to be growers under these circumstances. Make those, you know, uh, benchmarks, hit those benchmarks, and then actually convince everybody on your team, whether it be your stakeholders or your growers who might be a little skeptical or something like those, and then be like, 
Nothing but data, bitches. Like, data, data, data. <laughs> I know. We like need if, the research and we need the data. If you get flowering numbers under LEDs that are giving you better chemical profiles because you took the time to figure out how to grow with LEDs properly, you worked with your vendor to get everything all set up right, you actually did the calculations, you had the right HVAC, like, oh my God, you're a real grower now. Like, now we can start talking about how to have the consistency and quality and then really put those genetics to work. But then we put, you know, the argument then, right, is that if we play around with different lights or different environmentals or different substrates or stocks or whatever you want to play with, choose a variable, try not to choose more than one variable at a time. Let's <laughs> right. start there. Yeah. But the problem with doing it with industry, right, or the argument that growers might have or investors might have is, yeah, but if you make this change, if you want to use our space as an experiment, we could lose our crop. Mm-hmm. We might not hit our yields, right? We might not make money on this. We, you know, and and I know that there's a lot of growers who have small little R&D spaces so that they can play with that, but they're not relying on that as something to sell. But I think this is also why it's so important to, you know, declassify this plant at least a notch right so that we can get this into academic hands where they're not so reliant on selling the product to fund the research that they do i have a perfect perfect example for this and we'll have to get sue sisley's um oh yeah uh, uh take on this so Sue Sisley um, is a researcher in Arizona, and Sue has been doing amazing research, and she's been dying to actually do the type of research necessary to study questions like, could cannabis help veterans who are suffering with PTSD? The problem is she's forced to get her cannabis from, originally it was the University of Mississippi, and no disrespect, um, I, uh, the way that the University of Mississippi has to be able to grow and store and how their funding works. And, you know, they might be using stuff that, that they've had bolted away for a long time because of how their schedules and relationship works. And there's reasons for that, but <laughs> it's not the best quality. It's not um, very consistent. It's not, it's not even what would be considered medical grade at this point. At this right? point, yeah. right. So uh, that actually introduces a lot of variables. So how do you get really good clinical data? And then I recently was talking with her because I would love to actually provide her with tissue cultured material so she would have that baseline to or whoever she wants to grow and we could maybe have like a little Arizona. Yeah. You know, we could be the next Israel kind of stuff. Like <laughs> I love Sue. I'm like, come on lady, let's do it. I know we can do great stuff. Um, well she can't. She's forced to get her material from where they tell her to get it. And where they're telling her to get it is not concerned with everything we've been talking about today. <laughs> Who knows what they're concerned about? Who knows where it came from? Like, I mean, I'll let Sue talk about that. I'm not yeah. going to speak to that. I'm just going to say she can't do that. So how do we do the proper research and work with the groups that we really want to work with? So the easy answer in my mind right now, until all of that actually shakes out, is I would love for uh, local companies, so me being out of Arizona, and I'm going to be selfish and just talk about me, hey, if you want to fund me to do some research, I would do that. Cooperative extensions in Arizona would die to do that research. 
SEAC, I know, would like to mm-hmm. be funded for research. UC Davis would love, yeah. All I of mean, those, yeah. right? Like, you as a company could actually sponsor some research programs to get some of the answers that we so desperately need and want. Mm-hmm. You just have to be willing to make it public. Well, yeah. not everything's IP, guys. We've been farming for a long time. So let's just think about what it actually have greater impact and that's the one good thing about this industry is we all like to share right like we love that our forms like what's the difference when it comes to being the authors of publications and the one that's giving this to everybody and you do this for the greater good it's why we do it I mean we are very curious individuals and we want to be better at what we do so I think that there's a lot of ways that we can again as industry self-regulate but also promote the research that we need but there's there's the businesses with the money have to be willing to do it, right? I mean, I can't be a startup and a consultant and do the R&D and be able to publish the papers. I really want to, but I need to be funded to do so, and so does every other group that's doing this, mm-hmm. right? And so let's go ahead and start supporting that research in clever ways. We don't have to look to the government to do it every time. Absolutely. Thank you for that plug on research. So um, I just want to wrap up here and, and, and ask a question uh, looking into the future. So, and, and, and based on, on sort of current, you know, where we are in the present tense. I mean, what, what have you seen in the industry, whether it's a technology or a cultural practice or anything that... I don't know, gives you hope or that you are excited and encouraged about that the industry is moving in the right direction? I really am happy to see... So I have a couple of thoughts. Um, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't interview you if you only had one thought. <laughs> I, I like that more university uh, um, uh, faculty and students are being invited to these, um, yes. uh, to the conferences and, in general. I think it's going to be a little bit of a learn curve for the... Um, well, I also like that the industry is being taken more seriously and with and given the proper respect and legitimacy that it deserves because this is going to be the biggest commodity in the world soon, right? And so let's treat it with that respect and let's not um, belittle it anymore. And I'm seeing more of that type of mentality. I think it's going to take a little while for... Um, you know, the, the, the original and the legacies to, to understand how best to communicate because, you know, really PhDs are good at one thing. You know, there's nothing to be intimidated about. Like, we're not smarter. There's nothing better about us as a job. Like, we're just, we're regular people. So belly up, talk with us because we really actually do want to get up in your space and, and work with you. Um, so don't be afraid to approach us. But I really do think that there's hope for me to grow cannabis in space. Like that. Yes. That is something that gives me great hope. Like, if I could come full circle and if I actually could, like, come up with and grow cannabis in space, I'll grow purple because it's high in antioxidant. Like, I'll do it all day long. Like, we'll, we'll, (laughs) we'll do that for, like, a lettuce garnish. Like, NASA, 
let's do this, or hey, any of you billionaire uh, <laughs> rocket builders right now, you know, I will join the Space Force and grow plants in space all day long, <laughs> sign me up, like, I will do that, that's, that's what I'm, that's my goal, growing that's cannabis in space, let's do awesome. it. Awesome. I'm going to make that happen. Yeah. I mean, it could be an alien plant. Honestly, I mean, it's just so different. The way and the trichomes look like it totally. Good. I know exactly, and the fact that it likes such a high light level, like maybe it like needs to be closer to the sun. Different I, radiation. I, yeah, exactly. Cannabis. Oh my gosh, could you imagine doing mutations under cosmic radiation and the type of mutants that we could get? Oh my god, I'm just talking down my ass now. <laughs> but I still want to be able to do that, and then say, "Be like, this was actually mutated in space." That's what I'm going to do. There yeah, you go. Yeah. I mean, dream big. The ploidy. The ploidy <laughs> is just outrageous. So to leave our audience <laughs> with one final question and thought, in your, we've talked a lot about a lot of things, and I'm going to ask you to sum this up in a couple of sentences if you can. But what do plants crave? They need sun. Sun is free, baby, and sun is life. Yeah. Sun. They are autotrophs. Mm -hmm. They make their own food. Pretty from the system. light, from the energy from the sun. Yep. And they, they don't need to eat energy. They, yeah. Yep, plants do not eat. If you get that on a uh, plant biology class, do plants eat? And if you say true, you are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> They don't eat. Yeah, no, they need the sun. I think that's the most important thing. Sun. I mean, it, we can get into the lighting conversations and what have you, but sun's got everything, and it's figured it all out, and it's free. Yeah. Yeah, it, all these plants have evolved under sunlight for mm -hmm. millions and millions of years. Yep. That's why we're and here. <laughs> we don't even understand how all the waves of the sun, all the wavelengths of sunlight affect the No, planet. but thanks to the cannabis industry, there's a lot of curiosity yeah. for yeah. all the secondary metabolite industry. I think, yeah, this industry deserves a lot more respect than it's gotten. Um, Agreed. And, yeah, by, by everybody. So, it, I mean, we are pushing the automation, the software, the research, the need for security, like everything. Like, we're the next, we mm -hmm. are the NASA of, like moving certain industries and certain scientific um, ag industry forward. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Sorry, farmers. Sorry. I mean, we're also fucking it up for you. No. <laughs> <laughs> but we're also learning from yes, traditional yes, ag, Yes, sure. yes, yes, yes. And we will all be better stewards. Well, Hope, thank you so much for the conversation. <laughs> it was really fun to talk to you and nerd out with you. It was a good one. Actually, I got to talk about stuff I normally don't get to Yay, talk about unless we're awesome. actually in the booth and be like, all right. Like, <laughs> Yay. Yes, thank you. Cool. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, and we'll talk next time. That was Dr. Nadia Saba interviewing Dr. Hope Jones of Emergent Cannabis Sciences for our series, What Plants Crave. Tune in next week for our next episode. Dr. Saba will be speaking to Steve Squalia, co-founder of Amplified Farms, Cultivated California, and most recently, Friendo Flower. I'm Dennis Wadan, and this has been The Doctor is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for listening.